for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Anna. And today we are going over Kenobi Part 2. I will say it is absolutely pouring outside. It's 8 a.m. on a Sunday. I'm feeling really cozy. I'm just really excited to talk about this extremely cozy show that I love so much. <laughs> I didn't find it super cozy, but to recap, in Part 1, Obi-Wan Kenobi has been watching over Luke Skywalker in the deserts of Tatooine, and Inquisitors are looking for rogue Jedi. They found one, but one of the Inquisitors, a rogue Inquisitor named Reva, is looking specifically for Kenobi, and she arranges to have young Princess Leia of Alderaan kidnapped by a bounty hunter named Vect, whereupon Bail Organa calls Obi-Wan Kenobi and says, hey, you got to rescue my daughter. And we end part one with Obi-Wan climbing aboard a ship to go rescue Princess Leia. And that's how we end up on Dayu this episode. Which is the cyberpunk planet. It's like Coruscant, but punkier. It's very much inspired by like a futuristic Hong Kong or something. Very Blade Runner. Can't wait to talk about it. Anyway, what happens on Dayu? So first of all, Kenobi lands and there's no signals in or out. Everyone wants to keep their secrets here. Then he's looking around for information, is accosted by a drug dealer who's like, I was somebody's daughter once too. Uh, Actually played by an actress who is Ewan McGregor's daughter, but then gives him drugs because life is terrible on this planet. He looks so lost that the girl selling spice gives him a freebie. So another little kid finds him and says, there's someone who can help you. He's a Jedi. And we cut to Haja Estri, who is not a Jedi. He's a grifter. He's a grifter using magnets and remotes to smuggle people off of Dayu. And he's doing like the right thing, but he's pretending to be a Jedi and taking a lot of money for it. He's a capitalist. He <laughs> he has earned a profit on a thing that you should just do out of the good of your heart. So Obi-Wan has been hiding in the shadows and says, you're a rat. But in my experience, no one knows the sewer is like a rat. So tell me <laughs> so where this is. Yeah. <laughs> So we cut to Obi-Wan infiltrating a drug lab. A spice lab. Yeah, where he's dressed up like Walter White. And apparently (laughs) uh, that's where Leia has been being held. He walks into a room. It is, in fact, a trap. And he is captured by Vect and the gang. And Vect is like, Reva had you all figured out. You are Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're no longer a Jedi. Now you're just some dude bleeding on my floor. Kenobi says, everybody bleeds and drops a smoke bomb vial of spice while holding his breath with Jedi reflexes. So everyone falls to the floor high as a kite and he is able to escape. He goes to the actual room Leia's in and she punches him in the nads because she has freed herself because she's a fierce little gremlin. I love her so much. They escape and they make their way through the city with Leia asking extremely pointed questions about why Kenobi is so old, grouchy, out of touch. And the Grand Inquisitor comes by and is like, hey, uh, Reva, why did you start this incredible pile of kerfluffle? 
you are hereby regarded to the junior varsity team. And she's like, well, that's BS. <laughs> Pull me in, coach. Yeah, because now they know Kenobi's there. And so the Grand Inquisitor is going to go after him with a uh, fifth brother and fourth sister. They're locking down the city. Reva is benched. Reva decides the bench sucks. And she calls <laughs> up and says, put out a all points bulletin for all the scum everywhere. We're pulling a John Wick. Everyone is coming in to go after Kenobi. So Kenobi is running across the city. He has to beat up more than one person. And one of the people he beats up has a little bounty puck. And the bounty puck is for Kenobi. So Leia is not making this escape easy, point one. Point two, she then freaks out and runs away from him because she thinks that he's either another kidnapper or he's the reason that she was taken in the first place, which is an incredible leap of logic. She is the smartest 10-year-old I know. (laughs) So she runs off and gets accosted by people. Kenobi straight up shoots them. He's like, I'm no longer experiencing, like pause in this situation we just need to get to the very last shuttle so they make their way to the docks but on the way leia climbs aboard the roof and she's being chased there's a gunfight on the roof reva is sitting on the roof like batman waiting for something to happen and she sees that so now all the forces are converging in a rooftop firefight leia jumps grabs a rope is not able to hold on the rope falls Kenobi is reaching over the edge, and he grabs her with the force right before she hits the ground. And she's like, you really are a Jedi. And he's like, listen, we have to move. (laughs) So they escape to the docks. There they meet, once again, Haja Estri, who shows up because he also got the low-life scum bounty. And he's like, hey... Uh, here's the codes. The passenger shuttles are closed. You need to take a cargo shuttle. I'm going to help you. And he's like, Obi-Wan's like, you're not a real Jedi. And he says, I'm, I need to make amends. I'll slow them down. And he he's, takes out his blaster and heads off. He's a Jedi fanboy. Mm-hmm. So Haja, who's just delightfully played, meets up with Riva, And Riva's like, you're not a Jedi. He's like, it's me, Haja Estri, <laughs> the Jedi you've been looking for. What's the bounty up to now? One million? Two million? He's really, he's hamming it up and he's doing great. So uh, Reva flings him against the wall with the force and takes all the information out of his mind and then leaves him as a lobster. There is that. And the information leads her to the cargo docks. So Kenobi and Leia are boarding the cargo shuttle out of here. When Reva comes up with her warriors come out and play vibes. (laughs) And she reveals Kenobi. He wants to talk to you. Darth Vader. I can feel your fear. Oh, you didn't know? Anakin Skywalker is alive. And Obi-Wan is losing his mind. He is shooketh. However... Right then, the Grand Inquisitor shows up and says, Reva, you can't screw this one up. You're still benched. And she says, remember that time just previously where you called me a gutter rat? Uh, You're the rat now. And stabs him in the gut. She stabs her boss in the gut. Very relatable. Very ironically, the moment that she could have used to grab Obi-Wan is the moment that she has to use subduing the Grand Inquisitor. And Obi-Wan uses that exact moment to escape. So they fly off and Kenobi experiences just deep PTSD visions thinking about how 
Anakin is alive. Anakin is Darth Vader. And we cut to a figure in a back-to-tank making Darth Vader noises. It's Darth Vader. It's Anakin in the back-to-tank. Oh my god, it was so good! It was so good. I love this episode in particular because this, like, going to another planet and having it be, this is the cyberpunk, dark Star Wars planet. And Obi-Wan, even as soon as he lands, he's like, Master, if there was a time for your guidance, it's now. I need help. Yeah. So much to talk about. I think we should talk about just the visual drama first and the Mm -hmm. homages. I was curious why they set this episode in Dayu and not on Coruscant. Because I think, like, the underbelly of Coruscant is similar enough to what we got on Dayu that you almost could have just made them interchangeable and brought Kenobi back to a place where he was comfortable or or that was familiar to him. So I think the, the front end reason for that is that it's probably cheaper to have the relatively small uh, like sets you need for Dayu as compared to a lot more for Coruscant. But from a practical, from a like story point of view, I don't think that if they were headed to Coruscant, that Bale would need Kenobi. Okay. And I also think that if Riva asked Vect to take Leia to Coruscant, that she would have her base of power because Riva's power exists solely as an extension of her will. She doesn't have any resources to draw upon other than bounties and such. Like she doesn't have any friends. Her coworkers all hate her. I mean, that is rough. We'll we'll definitely talk about that in a moment. Okay, so setting this episode on Dayu was like, A, an equalizing force. Mm-hmm. It put everyone on a little bit more equal footing where they had fewer resources to call upon. B, incredibly visually interesting. It's just, it's grimy. It's neon. It's noodle bars. It's aliens in weird outfits. Mm-hmm. Delightful. I said that it reminded me of Blade Runner, and I, and I feel like that's true. I mean, Blade Runner had like that same wet, grimy Hong Kong feel, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's sort of the cyberpunk vibe. It's always nighttime. It's always neon. It's always raining. And that's Dayu. <laughs> Delightful. Yeah. There were some really beautiful visual choices that I loved. When Obi-Wan gets off of the ship and lands on Dayu, there's this fisheye lens. And it makes everything feel like distorted and he... His feeling of lostness is compounded by how uncomfortable I was with that shot. And I thought that was so gorgeously done. There's also almost immediately a clone begging for spare change, saying spare any credits for an old veteran wearing 501st armor. That was 501st armor? It looked like, yeah. Do you think Kenobi recognized him? I don't know if Kenobi recognized him. It feels like he probably recognized Kenobi. Oh. Like, I don't know how he couldn't, but I think that was a really important moment for Kenobi because this is the first time he's actually been able to be kind. Interesting. Yeah, on Tatooine, he was trying to keep his head down. So he only ever got to be kind to his space camel and to Tika the Jawa. If he ever saw someone suffering, he didn't get to do anything for them. He even bought a toy for Luke and had it returned by Luke's evil step uncle. That hurt me. We didn't have a chance to talk about that last week, but that squeezed my little heart. Mm -hmm. 
So this is the first opportunity Obi-Wan has to be kind. And it's interesting in his interactions with Leia, watching him open up. There's a moment where she is being, you know, stubborn and fierce and he pauses. He's like, you remind me of someone. Oh my God. And he, it's definitely Padme and I definitely teared up. When I say that that shook me to my core, that entire conversation was just very much like, I think I'm officially on team Obi-Wan loved Padme. So we talked about this in Revenge of the Sith, how there was an initial draft of Revenge of the Sith where Obi-Wan and Padme were implied to be having some sort of love affair on the side of Padme and Anakin. And the script was not entirely purged of that dynamic. That's why the scene where Padme follows Anakin to Mustafar and Obi-Wan comes after her Mm -hmm. still feels like Anakin being mad at Obi-Wan for Padme cheating. Yeah. I mean, that's why. And I think I just, I would have loved if that was officially part of the prequels because the way that Obi-Wan talks about Padme feels deeper than a friendship to me Mm -hmm. in this episode. He's like, she was fearless and stubborn. She was a leader and she died. And Leia seems to pick up on the gravity of that. Yeah. There are so many actions because this the previous episode, we don't see much of Kenobi interacting with people. There's a lot of him going through the motions, and now he's actually having conversations with people. And it's delightful because he still has his one-liners. He still is like, everybody bleeds, smoke bomb. That's classic. <laughs> that's classic General Kenobi. <laughs> and then he gets into multiple fist fights and he, despite being an old man, he's still like, yeah, I can beat up two thugs in the alleyway. I'm going to cut my hand on one of them because he has horns, but uh, no problems beating guys up. I got that. Yeah, I think this Obi-Wan was a really smart continuation of the Obi-Wan from last episode. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot with Kathleen about how Obi-Wan in part one, episode one of this show, is very, very traumatized. And I think... That continues really nicely in this episode. This Obi-Wan is still very lost and very rusty. He gets off of that transport ship to Dayu, and he has to ask for directions. And that does not feel like something General Kenobi from the Battle of Christophsis in season one of the Clone Wars would have had to do. You know, it kind of, it's, it's episode two Kenobi. When he, like, they're chasing down Zam Wessel, and Anakin's like, we got to follow. We got to figure out what's going on. Where are you going, master? And everyone's like, I'm going for a drink. Like, <laughs> they're in the bar. We, we'll we'll figure it out. We can play it cool. We can look for information. It's old detective Kenobi. Mm. And I feel like that's, that's who he is. He's also rusty in that regard, though. And he's this amalgamation of rust. He is just a rusty detective. He's a rusty <laughs> fighter. He's definitely a rusty shot because he gets into this extremely long-running firefight on the roof where he's he misses a lot before he finally gets the guy. I mean, everybody is missing a lot. Yeah, now that you say it, episode two, Attack of the Clones, Kenobi reminds me a lot of Tara Sanube mm-hmm. when Tara Sanube is teaching Ahsoka how to tail someone through Coruscant. And I was really admiring when Obi-Wan's moving his way through inner city Dayu, how 
slowly he moves and people can pick up on how lost he is, but he's also quite unobtrusive. And I think that's really interesting because I think there are other characters from Star Wars who would have moved through that situation with a lot more like flash Mm -hmm. and bang. And the way that Kenobi does it is very old detective. It's, It's old hat. Mm-hmm. He's not moving quickly. He's moving slowly to move effectively. There's a great moment for that as they're going through the market after Leia's been rescued. And he's like, I need you to wear different clothes. And mm-hmm. she's like, what about this extremely flashy, like crazy vest? He's like, no, this one. And he goes to the proprietor of this street stall. He's like the little green cape. And she's trying on gloves. And he's like, you don't need those. And she's still trying them on. And he's like, it is more unobtrusive to just buy the gloves than it is for me to have a fight with this little girl in front of this shopkeeper. I'll take the gloves too. <laughs> See, I thought that was just like Kenobi not knowing how to parent and being like, okay, the gloves too. Well, the moment of parenting comes as they're waiting in an alley because their plan is to get the very last transport out because Obi-Wan's like, hey, I, if we fool our way onto the last transport out, then no one can follow us and we'll be good. So they're waiting in an alleyway and they've just beat up a bounty hunter and Kenobi's like checking things out and he sees Leia's playing with Lola Mm -hmm. and he says, don't turn that on. And Leia says, her name is Lola, but she's broken. And he says, good. And then he immediately realizes Mm -hmm. that he effed up and he comes and he squats down and he has this like fake cheery voice that I use when I have to interact with small children. And he's Mm -hmm. like, so what happened to her anyway? And she says, Lola is hurt. She was ripped to pieces by kidnappers, but she'll be all right. She's strong. Oh my God. Which is obviously Leia talking about herself. Oh my God. But it's very, he is able to turn around in that moment. And that's one of those moments where he turns, like is turning himself around into being Kenobi. It reminds me of what Sid did with Omega Mm -hmm. in season one of Bad Batch, where I can't quite remember. Omega was left behind so the Bad Batch could go do a plot without her. Oh, and then uh, Sid gets her to beat everyone at the holo tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before that, Omega's sitting there like nursing her Kool-Aid or whatever, like nursing her orange juice Mm -hmm. and like, you know, drinking at the bar because she's upset that her brothers are gone. And Sid is so mean to her. And then she looks over at the regulars, the barflies, and they just shake their heads at her. (laughs) And she immediately realizes that that was not a cool move for the adult in this situation. And I loved that because I don't know how to interface with children. And I bet Obi-Wan does not know how to interface with children. And it just felt like this really realistic moment of someone who's not used to parenting having to learn by the seat of their pants what you can and cannot say to a 10-year-old. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I do think that Obi-Wan knows a fair bit about parenting because he was 16 or whatever when he took on Anakin, who was also, what, about Leia's age, 10. Oh, no. I forgot about that. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's probably also rusty at that. This Obi-Wan is not that Obi-Wan. Yeah. He is 
just about ready to ignite his lightsaber this whole time. At the very end, when Reva is chasing him down to this loading dock, he's got his lightsaber in his hand and he is he's ready to take her on, but he just really doesn't want to. And when he has to use the force to rescue Leia, that's the first time we've seen him use the force. And that felt like it was a big strain for him. Like it was something he had very much put aside. Yeah, I loved that we got to see how much it cost him. Mm-hmm. The entire episode, he has his lightsaber, but he's using a blaster. And he, you can see as Leia is hanging from one teeny tiny fist from this cable, he's hoping that she can figure out some way to get herself out of it or that he can figure out a way to move through the situation without using the force. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as he uses it, there's no going back from that. And there are bystanders in the alleyway. What he told Leia is like, no, I can't make you float. No, I can't ignite my lightsaber. It'll draw attention to us. Mm-hmm. And then everything he was afraid of comes true. Yeah. He's backed into a corner. It is truly the only way out of the situation. It cost him a lot. And he then doesn't spring into Jedi mode from there. When Reva is stalking him through the cargo port, it's not like he ignites his lightsaber to fight back. He's still in hiding. And he's still afraid. She is sensing his fear. Mm-hmm. That scene is really transformative for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that uh, there's the concept of a canon survivor. Oh. Right? So that's like when you do a prequel, there's certain characters you can't kill off because you know they're going to show up in the uh, the later works. Okay. So this is for people who are not watching chronologically like I am. Yeah. So the Grand Inquisitor shows up in later works. Okay. And that that meant that this moment where Reva stabs the Grand Inquisitor in the guts, people found that very controversial. Oh, I thought it was awesome. I agree. And I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, which is the people who can't fathom a workplace, let's call it, the Inquisitors, a order of people who have like ambition And they can't fathom literally stabbing their boss in the guts (laughs) are either lacking in ambition or imagination. Or they've always had non-toxic work environments, which, let's be real, might be a very small fraction of people. Or they've been living under a boot heel so long they don't know what the sun looks like because, you know... Protests against unfair working conditions are the compromise instead of killing people in front of their families. Like, this is... This is this level of just violence, of ambition, of of needs, wants, and desires, of exerting one's power that Reva does by just being like, you slowed me down. I actually am the one to capture Kenobi, and I would have gotten him except for you meddling bosses. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And her boss had insulted her for her station before. Like, you came from the gutter. Yeah, I think this episode talks about classism in a hundred ways. And Mm -hmm. I saw the most in that interaction between the Grand Inquisitor, the favored brother and sister, Mm -hmm. and then Reva. So what the Grand Inquisitor says is, 
whatever power you think you're going to gain by capturing Kenobi, it won't change what you are, which is the least of us. Mm -hmm. You came to us from the gutter and your ability gave you a station, but it will never mask the stench beneath. What's so interesting about that is that ostensibly the Inquisitors are Jedi who have been turned. Yeah. So that's what we found out is that they were mostly Jedi who are now hunting their own. And what that means is that, by and large, they all had every single trace of their past removed at, like, age two when they were taken in to become younglings. Right. So in order for there to be a class put on top of that, that means that that's an artificial thing added afterwards to the Inquisitors. Hmm. They are no longer a first among equals situation now they are organized and that's why they're referred to by numbers they have been given this this ambition has been imprinted upon them by the structure of their society yeah so that was one of my notes i was curious if the way that the if the way that the inquisitors are so intent on stepping on Riva and grinding her under their heel is a comment on how the empire functions, that it is traced along hierarchy and bloodlines. But as you were saying that, I was also wondering if maybe Riva came to them late. She might have. Not that that would specifically matter in the thing, as far as we know, how the Inquisitors work. So two of the things that are canon that are happen concurrently with this are the Jedi survivor or Jedi outcast and Jedi survivor games. And in those, we learn a lot about the inquisitors. And in fact, a uh, Jedi fallen order starts with the same type of scene where the Padawan has to use his force powers in front of bystanders to mm. save someone. And that calls the inquisitors down. Yeah. So the idea of them being Jedi who were turned, Padawans and younglings who were turned to the dark side. Or full force Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Yes, some of them are. And so perhaps it is that if you were a full Jedi master or something, then you get to become the Grand Inquisitor or a brother. But Reva's third sister, that seems like a good number, maybe. I mean, unless they're like... If unless one is the worst one and then like nine is the best one. Yeah. Who who knows? But- well, so that would be really interesting because I'm trying to like wrap my head around the gutter comment, right? I think it is a super interesting comment on classism. But also, if, for example, you had to be a Jedi Master who then turned against the Order to become the Grand Inquisitor, then you were the closest to the Jedi. You had the most Jedi order on you. Mm -hmm. So it would make more sense if you were someone who was a force user who was not part of the Jedi, who then turned against the Jedi, because then you would have had the least amount of interaction with the, the scum as possible. Possibly. I think that there's a finesse with the force that might be available. And it feels like some of the other force users have more finesse. In part one, Riva is about to decapitate a dude in the bar, or he's a, she's about to decapitate Nari, the Jedi who they have en- end up hanging, and the Grand Inquisitor stops her lightsaber in mid swing, which seems like it's a that seems like a very high power maneuver to pull on someone to stop their lightsaber. Yeah, 
I guess I read that more as the writers trying to draw a line between the old guard approach, which is the Grand Inquisitor showboating and firming up their identity and making people afraid of them and giving them a reputation. And then Riva, who doesn't feel like they have time for that Mm -hmm. and is so impatient with the scraps of force users that they're going after, like... I didn't read that as a comment on Riva being less strong in the Force. I read it as the difference in approach that she has to the Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. She seems incredibly powerful in the Force. She is sensing all of Kenobi's emotions. She reads Haja's mind in the alleyway. She's Force-leaping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think she's very powerful in the Force. I think that the Grand Inquisitor might have some more finesse, just a few more tricks up his sleeve. Yeah. And I think, so this is something I've been cogitating on for a while, just stewing on, which is (laughs) the Inquisitors seem like Darth Vader's pet project. Yeah, that was a question that I had for Kathleen last week that we didn't get to was, are the Inquisitors a project of Palpatine or are they a project of Lord Vader? I'm pretty sure they're a project of Vader. Mm -hmm. Palpatine has this whole empire to run, and Palpatine and Vader still have the Sith Master-Sith Apprentice relationship, which means it is incumbent upon Vader to control a significant pile of resources himself and try to get them in place to overthrow Palpatine. I mean, he's been an apprentice for 10 years now. Dude's ready for a promotion. Well, who knows how long one is an apprentice. And Palpatine still hasn't told him the secret to eternal life, which is what got him there in the first place. Palpatine, it feels like a very Queen Elizabeth thing where you're like, (laughs) could you, I'm Prince Charles, could you please just die (laughs) so that I can ascend to the throne before I'm 90 years old? Like, that's what it feels like. I mean, and this is 10 years before the original trilogy. Oh, man. But the structure of the Inquisitors as your only purpose is to hunt Jedi, you have quite unlimited resources. When Reva is accosted by the Grand Inquisitor for her plan to bring Vect in and, and capture Leia, he's like, I can't believe you'd kidnap a senator's daughter. And she says, we've done worse. Which shows that they have a really wide range of powers that they can call on as long as they're kind of subtle about it. Mm -hmm. And it is importantly a dark side force user thing, but they're not Sith. Because the Sith would have the master and apprentice. These guys are just mooks. They're just... They're nothing compared to Vader and Palpatine. They're the stormtroopers. They may be elite Mm -hmm. in the ranks of the Empire, but they don't have any special powers. It's interesting that they use red lightsabers. So we know they're Force users. We know that they're probably former Jedi. They did have to kill someone and imbue their kyber crystal with, like, the blood, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they have to pull a Force user's force through the crystal to turn it red although they each have the spinny lightsabers which is another thing very general grievous style yeah so every inquisitor lightsaber is like a handle with a ring around it and then it can that ring has a bearing on the inside so it's got an inner ring and an outer ring it's got two blades and so the blade will spin 
And those debuted in Rebels and were backported into this. And at the time, everyone was like, oh, that's a very silly lightsaber. But in this one, we get to see Vect get blenderized by one. Well, off screen. So they Gnarly. apparently work. I think yeah. I I think I blocked that out due to trauma. That was Gnarls Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought the tension between Reva and the Grand Inquisitor and actually all of the Inquisitors is really interesting. Like to to close this discussion about horrible workplaces, it seems like the Grand Inquisitor would love to fire Reva. Mm-hmm. But it's it seems like it would be very very difficult to fire someone who is so powerful in the dark side of the force and who has a lightsaber because they'll just kill you. Yeah. Which is what Reva, to my knowledge, did. Yeah, she she stabbed him right in the gut. She stabbed him through the gut with a lightsaber. To me, that is a body. That is a crime. The Grand Inquisitor is down for the count. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she, she attacked him, attempted to kill him, in cold blood to a viewer like you killed him. And now, now what is she going to have the rest of the inquisitors after her? Is she going to get a promotion? Like what's going on? (laughs) And it depends on how the inquisitors operate. It's funny that they're operating like a little microcosm of the Sith because Mm -hmm. what Reva essentially did was kill her Sith master Mm -hmm. so that she no longer had to be an apprentice and could assume his role but they're not the sith they're a parody of the sith they're doing a she wants to become vader's favored inquisitor oh she wants to be assage yeah pretty much Ooh. and so the power level that the inquisitors have in this compared to vader makes vader seem more powerful without his presence gracing the screen and i love that oh that's interesting yeah it's It's quite sad, really, because Mm -hmm. when you watch The Clone Wars, you realize what a terrible job Asajj has. And like, you don't want to be Asajj. You wish that Asajj wanted something better for herself. Dooku is horrible to her and manipulates her. And she, in turn, is horrible to her apprentice, Savage. Mm -hmm. And so it's really quite sad to watch Reva think she's really doing something and trying to ascend this ladder. But the ladder is rigged. The ladder is a trap. Yeah. This horrible workplace continues all the way to the top of the chain. Unless you're Palpatine, you're losing. And that lines up with what the Grand Inquisitor said to her, that she will never get past the gutter here. I think he might know the Grand Inquisitor is the highest job you can get in the dark side force user side of the Empire, because otherwise you have to go after Vader. Mm -hmm. And Vader will kill everyone he'll eat you for breakfast yeah you're part of his wheaties breakfast of champions vader is a genuinely scary creature and palpatine of course will just unalive your parents before you're born he'll just (laughs) just delete you from history somehow because he's he's a he's like one of the most powerful siths i've ever lived and vader is just anakin skywalker with all of his weaknesses removed and replaced with anger and spite hmm I guess I haven't seen Lord Vader yet, really. I saw Anakin turning into Lord Vader on Mustafar, who then fell to Kenobi. So how powerful was he really? Or is it a statement on how powerful Kenobi was at the peak of his power at his prime? I think that that is the light side versus the dark side. 
So the dark side preys on weakness, but when one is in tune with the light side, when they are free of fear, they are undefeatable. Mm, That's very beautiful. And that is probably why Kenobi is like, yeah, we got to balance. I'm not ready for this fight. Like I got to, I would, Kenobi would rather just crawl through the sewers for a hundred miles on hands and knees than ignite his lightsaber because he doesn't trust himself. Ooh. And at that point, he is a danger to himself and others. It's such a statement on what you risk by not coming into your power. Like, I think about this a lot because, I mean, I think Star Wars can teach us a lot about how to move through the world. I think fiction teaches us a lot about how to move through the world worse or better than we know how to do. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that in my life, the times that I have not owned my power are where I really miss out on opportunities that I could have had if I just reached for them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is a real statement on what you lose when you don't trust yourself or what you risk when you don't trust yourself. Obi-Wan not being in his power is putting himself and Leia at risk. And on the dark side of that, Reva trusting in her power is stabbing her boss. Yeah, Reva may or may not be ready for what she's going after, but she's going after it. And so she is becoming ready. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think I had lessons to learn from Reva, but maybe the lesson is do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the Reva move. Is it's just do the dang thing. Yeah. She's after the big prize. She's after Kenobi because she knows that Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, is like single-minded. He's like, I founded the Inquisitors to take out Jedi and also to take out Obi-Wan Kenobi. Taking out all the Jedi and taking out Obi-Wan Kenobi are your two missions and they are of equal weight. What do you think, Lord Vader, I hesitate to call him Anakin because Mm -hmm. that's like his dead name now. (laughs) What do you think Darth Vader thinks he will accomplish or earn by having Kenobi killed or killing Kenobi? You know, he was there's there's a lot of legends, canon kind of marginalia about what vader is capable of and how much less he is capable of because his arms and legs are robotic Uh and that is something that kenobi took from him which he can never get back yeah and so the power that he wields is less because of kenobi he wants vengeance i think he wants vengeance and i think he wants to close the loop because he's like I have killed everything that has ever tried to stop me since I became Darth Vader, save one thing. Mm. And that one thing is Obi-Wan Kenobi. I guess as a person who doesn't really think along those lines, I would not say I'm a particularly vengeful person. That's nice. Yeah, good for me. (laughs) I have 
don't worry, I have plenty of other foibles and flaws of which Sam is well acquainted. I am. (laughs) I guess I just see it as such an empty goal. Like, what is the reward for achieving vengeance? It doesn't catapult him higher in the ranks. He's about as high as he can go without killing his boss. Mm -hmm. I think it's very um, medieval. It's very just the way it's futile, the way of interacting with people in terms of vengeance and vendettas. But what's interesting to me is how much of the spiritual writings of the last like 3,000 years relate to, hey, stop having vendettas, stop having vengeance. It is something which was and continues to be a significant part of many cultures. And we're lucky that we were raised in cultures even in America, there's many different subcultures, and some of them are all about the vengeance. I was not raised in one of those. I was raised in a culture of resentment. Oh, the mafia didn't raise you? No, no, <laughs> no. No mob boss daddy for you. Uh, Colin Woodward in the Founding Nations of America talks about how the Appalachian uh, culture is a lot about slights and vengeance. And that spreads for a huge swath of America because it stretches from you know Texas to Pennsylvania. That's why Southern hospitality culture is so entrenched, right? Mm-hmm. Because the slights run for generations. Whereas because I'm from the West, which is the internal colony, my hospitality is take what you will and leave because you're a colonizer. Even though, you know, of course, my family's only been there for a handful of generations. Like five. Yeah. But six. once once you, you know, you, we've, we've gone, gone native. <laughs> I want to go back. I had one galaxy brain thought. And then, and then we can close out this discussion. As you were talking about how Anakin slash Vader's way of moving through the world is very medieval. Mm. I was thinking about how we always talk about... Uh, Hammurabi's code, an eye for an eye. Mm -hmm. And we talk about it as like, yes, and then like that was the first code of justice. And then we evolved past that because we realized that there were so many better ways to do it so uncivilized. But actually, I feel like the eye for an eye way of moving through the world was to put a stop to vendettas in their tracks. You know that if you pluck out someone's eye, they will pluck out yours and then you're quit. And then you're done. And then it doesn't fester because everyone got what they were owed. And so it's actually, it was a devolving to medieval society of feudal states and vendettas and vengeance and Mm -hmm. revenge. We evolved backwards from what, a thousand BC? A little bit earlier than that, yeah. 300 BC? That's less... Yeah, my my brain doesn't do years well. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you that the systems of laws that are put in place to protect people, protect people who abide by a system of laws. And Vader exists beyond those. So he is willing to put significant resources into vengeance because that he considers himself above the law. And that is where the power of the station has corrupted him in addition to the power of the dark side. Yeah, the Sith are above the law, just not above Sith law. And that goes back to part one, the Inquisitors are above the law, just not Mm. above the law of everyone here is armed. And if you are impolite for one minute, your underlings may kill you. 
I love that we've been able to have such a rich off-the-cuff discussion about part two because I think that Kenobi's pacing, the show's pacing, lends itself to really rich discussions because there's a lot of empty space and implication and insinuation. And I didn't always feel that way about works that were earlier in the chronology, right? Like, yes, there is a lot going on in the prequel movies, but in some ways there's a lot less to dig into. And sometimes I felt that way about the early Clone Wars episodes too. And it's just, I think Kenobi has really sophisticated storytelling and it's working for me as a new fan and it's working for you as a veteran fan. It really is working for me. I'm getting a lot out of a deep dive into this, particularly off of power structures and ambition. And ambition is such a a classic motivation. Yeah. That's Julius Caesar. You know, he, (laughs) he was assassinated for being ambitious and that's 2080 years ago. So that being a defining characteristic of a villain and having this slow burn villain and this slow burn rising to the call hero, it just lends itself to a really nuanced story. And I think it's, it's really good. Unfortunately, this show came out and there was a bit of Star Wars fatigue at the time. The Star Wars, the really, Disney's still tuning the Star Wars dial. It just does not seem like it should be that difficult. And because Riva is a powerful black woman, uh, a bunch <sighs> of the, the fan base decided that that is not, not, that is not their Star Wars. See, because what I loved about the Inquisitors is how multicultural they are. And what I find super interesting about that is um, it's no longer canon by any means, but a lot of the Legends continuity deals with the human supremacy within the Empire, that most of the Empire is human. And that's really just because extras in the original trilogy era. And then we went to the prequel era, and all the Jedi are aliens. Mm -hmm. Like, the only humans on the Jedi Council are Mace Windu and Kenobi. Fabulous. And everyone else is, like, green or huge or forehead alien or what have you. And has a million wives. Uh (laughs) And so having the Inquisitors be a cross-section of the Jedi as opposed to a cross-section of the Empire also changes the dynamic between them because (gasps) Riva is the human Inquisitor. Oh, that's so smart. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. I was laughing a little bit because like in some senses, the Grand Inquisitor comes across on screen as a white man because mm-hmm. he's man-shaped and he's very white yeah. but he is not a white man he's an utapauan from the planet utapau oh okay mm-hmm. fun fact he is played by the actor who played wickham in the 2005 pride and prejudice who is objectively one of the most beautiful people <laughs> just people in the entire universe and he does not look at in this show he <laughs> looks horrifying i love the uh some of the actors here vect is played by flea from red hot chili peppers I know. <laughs> he just, and he looks like such a slime ball and then reva of course one of her moses ingram yeah, from queen's gambit from queen's gambit where she plays like a hard-edged orphan but with a heart of gold with a heart of gold who like pulls her life together in a rough time in american history who is way nicer to the main character than 
Beth necessarily deserves to to be. Yeah. I don't know what the grammar of that structure of that sentence was, but you know what I'm saying. You're not getting paid for writing today. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> it's my day off. <laughs> it's my day off from grammar. So there's there's some really cool characterizations. Uh, Tamir Morrison's in this one. Yes, as he the is. Clone. Which, yeah, I am assuming that Chuchi's pension plan did not pan out since he is panhandling on the streets of Dayu. Well, it's been ten years. And the clones have the accelerated aging, so maybe they're expecting them to all be dead by now. Oh, no. Also, you know, the pension plans are the first to go. That's why um, that's that's why the Department of Defense owes a huge pile of money to the Social Security Fund because of the Vietnam War. I guess the way that Chuchi and Bale were working it in Bad Batch Season 2 was they were saying to Palpatine, you can either have your new war your new army, Mm -hmm. or you can have a pension plan for your just barely decommissioned army. And so I guess we can intuit that Palpatine was like deuces to my old army. And the fact that there is still an imperial presence spreading across the galaxy means they funded that instead. Well, that goes to what the nature of the empire is in order to increase that military spending, which the empire wants because they want to increase fear they have to have a continual program of expansion. Yeah. Because you cannot fully fund, um, there's no purpose in fully funding a military if you aren't an expansive state. I'm doing the Italian fingers. Manifest destiny. Yeah, exactly. Well, just straight up colonialism. There are a couple other teeny tiny Easter eggs that I totally loved. Mm -hmm. The little con artist who's helping Haja Estre Mm -hmm. is named Jaco. Do you remember a character named Jabo? Yeah. He was the little kid in Mystery of a Thousand Moons in season two of The Clone Wars. That episode is a trip. That episode is, I still think about it and how freaking wild that plot was. It was a movie in 22 minutes. And it's inside a different plot. It's yeah. inside the the uh, Blue Shadow Virus plot. Yeah, Mystery of the Thousand Moons <laughs> was where Anakin and Obi-Wan went there to get the Venus flytrap <laughs> flower just, to cure Padme and Ahsoka just, from the plague. Just this scene where they're like a plant monster attacks them and Obi-Wan turns on his lightsaber and Anakin pulls out a shovel. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and then like what they're what is actually happening in that episode is that there are are a million there's like a force field bouncing between the thousand moons yeah, it's of a bunch of Diego. like ghost defense platform and then they recruit the local force of angels to get them out yeah it's something else season two of the clone wars was a trippy time <laughs> like star wars in live action almost doesn't get weird enough yeah you're right there's all the live action shows, because there's been, what, four of them, Mando, Kenobi, Book of Boba Fett, and uh, Andor, are all very down to earth. Mm-hmm. And they're happening at the same time as the Resistance and as uh, Rebels, which mm-hmm. do have quite a few moments of like fun, weird stuff. So yeah. we got we to gotta hold out for that. I guess if people are upset about a black woman being an Inquisitor, maybe they're just not ready for the weirdness that is actual Star Wars. I'm calling them fake fans. <laughs> if they were real fans, they would know that this is really tame. Also, Reva is an absolutely believable character of someone who there is no path forward. 
I have every single one of my physical needs that I need a path forward. My path forward is killing my boss. It's a logical progression. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally here for it. Mm-hmm. You called we, just, out. Just importantly, we both like our bosses. That's not, yeah. that's not going to be part of my, it's not at all part of my personal journey at this time. I have almost always liked my bosses and the boss that I liked the least, I pitied. So Same. <laughs> With that. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's yeah. keep moving. Let's keep moving. <laughs> okay. I don't know how to segue gracefully from that. So let's talk about people we actually let's like for Baywatch. people we actually like. It's time for Baywatch. <laughs> Baywatch. Baywatch. Here is the awkward thing. I I didn't pick a bay yet. So what? so you go first and 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 you go first. You always pick a bay. I, I'm I'm the one who never writes it down. I come up with it during the episode. I know and I thought I was going to and then I didn't. So now I'm kind of desperately scrambling for answers. So maybe you'll inspire me. Okay. Well, my bay is Leia. Oh, tell me why. Uh Leia freed herself from her restraints Mm -hmm. and first action of the episode just takes a chair arm and wails Kenobi (laughs) right in the crotch. She's like, I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are. I'm going to escape. My poor broken droid has used its itsy bitsy pizza cutter to chop through my restraints. I'm ready to go. I am fury and mischief. Second action goes shopping. Yeah, she's like, okay, I'm on this weird planet I've never been to before. I never get to go off world. This is very fun. There's weird aliens everywhere. There's a moment right when she gets out of the lab with Kenobi and she's like marching off and a absolutely <laughs> massive <laughs> alien that's like, like 40 pounds Yeta. of fur. It's, it's a, a Yeti, Yeti snow yeah. monster. Just like looks at her and she just has this hilarious look of like, oh my God. <laughs> And you see this on kids where they're just like, I have no idea what I just saw. I'm genuinely aghast. Brain does not compute. And then she's like, oh, kebabs. Mm-hmm. And Kenobi's like, no, don't look at food. Don't smell food. Don't think about food. We are hustling. We are hustling. She asks him all the right questions. And then she intuits what the situation actually is. Man. Which is really fun and really scary and really good storytelling. It really is. That moment solidified her character in an incredibly tight fashion. Mm -hmm. I will also say she x-rayed Obi-Wan's weaknesses and frailties in one line of dialogue. She Mm -hmm. said, you think the less you say, the less you give away, but it is the opposite. And I was like, Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. We I mean and why it works is because we got the foreshadowing for that which is her eviscerating her cousin over light appetizers mm-hmm. in the first episode. We also have a very funny moment where he says we're farmers from tall, you're my daughter <laughs> and she's like granddaughter maybe. He's like what was that? And that's so Nothing. funny because you know I'll bet Obi-Wan's younger than Bale. Yeah. Honestly. And he's only a handful of years, like could have been high school buddies with Anakin. And he's just 
been living a rough life. So I may not be good at numbers or years, but I do have the math. Mm-hmm. Obi-Wan was 25 when he took charge of Anakin Skywalker. No way. 25? That, that is what StarWars.com says. He was a apprentice until he was 25. Qui-Gon was killed when he was 25. He takes over Anakin. He's 35 in The Clone Wars. Yeah. Which means he's now 45. 48. He's 48. He looks a lot younger than that across the board, but that does make sense for his eventual age in the original trilogy. I am nearly positive that they were not thinking that he was 25 in The Phantom Menace, and they have somewhat retconned that. Yeah. Because he does not, he looks maybe 20 in Phantom Menace. Oh, generously. He he looks like, uh, he looks in Phantom Menace like he's got one more good wave of puberty coming. Really? Mm-hmm. Which, at least for me, like really ramped up in like my mid 20s. Hmm. And I got like a really thorough bulking out and stuff that Obi-Wan got as well. So anyway, I'm sorry. I got you totally off track. I love that Leia's like, you're just like kind of old and beat up for a Jedi. But then once he does save her, she turns everything around. And at the very end, when he's like, go ahead, go on without me. If I'm not there, go on without me. And she's like, yep. Like, if that's the plan, that's the plan. I am aware of how plans work when people are hunting you. I was ready to escape on my own. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so what ends up happening is she doesn't trust him. She's doing whatever she wants. She's testing him. Mm -hmm. He says to her, you have to do everything I tell you, right? But he hasn't earned her trust yet, so Mm -hmm. she doesn't. Then he saves her. She realizes he actually is a Jedi. And from then on, she does everything he tells her to do. And he said, go into the cargo ship, escape, no matter what, don't stop. So she does. He did not get her immediate unswerving loyalty because she is a force to be reckoned with. She has principles. She has a brain. She decided she didn't trust him. Then she did. Mm-hmm. And so that characterization was earned. Yeah. So she's great. And that is my bae. I love that. I still haven't come up with a bay. I think I just have really bad ideas for bays this episode. Like I kind of want it to be Haja, but it's just because he was so well acted. It's not because he really did anything Bay-worthy. He just had maybe the best delivery and dialogue of Star Wars ever. Do you want to go with Haja? I am going to go with Padme. Padme. I think I think I'm going to go with Padme. Padme. Padme, 10 years after her death, is still influencing what Obi-Wan Kenobi does and what Lord Vader does and gave us Leia. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to go with Padme. Impressive. Impressive. Also affected the relationship with Bale because Bale would do anything for Leia as his adopted daughter because Leia is also his continuance of Padme. I hope you don't hear this as a cop-out. I'm really, I'm I'm not trying to do a cop-out. No, no. I just, the, the Padme moment in this episode shook me harder than anything in a Star Wars in a while. It hit my cryometer, yeah. And I think it is a real testament to the person that Padme was that she continues to kind of be alive in the show. Yeah, 
Now, that's an interesting thing to say, because throughout this, we were given the stinger at the beginning that Yoda tasked Kenobi with homework to get in touch with Qui-Gon. And we know that that's possible from some of the Force Ghost arcs in Season 6, when Yoda is communing with Qui-Gon. And so that is Kenobi's homework, and he's been trying. He has tried multiple times Mm -hmm. in the previous two things we've seen to get Qui-Gon to appear for him, to communicate with him. Mm -hmm. But Padme, as a non-Force user, as someone who is just a normal, is able to actually leave these reverberations through 10 years after her death because she was such a Force to be reckoned with. That's an interesting choice. Thank you. I feel pretty good about it. She's got to stay up there in those rankings. She's got to stay in the top 10. I feel like Qui-Gon just recently got booted, which is hilarious because I voted for him twice in The Phantom Menace, both parts that we did, and then once when he was a Force ghost. And he has been clawed. He has been clawing his way to the top 10 of Baywatch. (laughs) And Padme's up there. Okay, what are we watching next week? Uh, well, we're going to do part three of Kenobi. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who could have guessed? Who could have known? As always, you can find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon. Follow us on all of your podcast apps. Download more podcast apps and follow <laughs> us on those. Just really juice those numbers. You know what really helps with exposure and with people getting served our podcast is if you leave us a five-star review. If you like what we're doing, please drop us five stars. You can do that on Spotify. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a review and it just gives us that that sweet, sweet endorphin rush and it, it helps Growing Up Skywalker get to more people. Also, if you would like to support us in other ways, we are doing a really fun Tartakovsky Clone Wars watch through on our Patreon. Monthly memberships start at just $3 a month. And send this episode to someone who has earned your trust, whether through giving themselves up to an Inquisitor or by actually showing her a Jedi. Yeah, and if you decide that you trust yourself the most, I applaud you and you should listen to the episode twice. Heck yeah. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.